And our reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel, chapter 18, and you can find it on page 290 of the Pew Bibles, if you wish to follow it in in the Pew Bibles, page 290. And we're reading chapter 18, verses 1 to 12, and then from verses 20 to 29. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. Now we move to verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. 
He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king, so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Roger. Right, let's pray. As always, Father, we pray that you would use your word to teach us and change us. Please do so this morning. Amen. I wonder whether someone could just shut the door. I can hear singing, and if you're not distracted, I certainly am. Right. Last, uh, last week, uh, we were looking at David and Goliath. Famous story. What's less well known is what happened next, and that's what we're moving on to this week. You see, the Israelites had won a comprehensive victory over the Philistines. The Philistine champion was dead, and the result was that the Israelites were more secure than they had been for a generation. The army marched back from the southwest of the country, where the battle had been fought, up into the central hill country, where Saul's capital was. And as they were marched through the country, people came out and rejoiced. We heard that in verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul and David were both heroes. Everyone was happy. Everyone was rejoicing. Well, everyone, that is, bar one. And that was the king himself. Saul should have been happy. After all, it was his enemies who had been defeated. Uh, It was his standing that had been enhanced. And indeed, he now had a champion of his own in David. David was to go on to become one of his great commanders. So why was it that Saul didn't see it that way? What what was it that stopped him? Well, in a word, insecurity. Insecurity and fear. So often, those things lead on to jealousy and to anger. And they did just that in Saul. If you've got it open, take a look at verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. By the way, his comment about what the women had sung, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, his comment on that was absolutely absurd, as he would have known intellectually. Uh, The conventions of Hebrew poetry and song uh, meant that you put couplets together like that and intensified from the lower to the greater, thousands to tens of thousands. All the women were singing was, Saul and David together have won a great victory. But as usual, as is common, 
insecurity trumps rational thought. And it did so in the case of Saul. And that's why we need to think carefully about it. Because I suspect most of us, from time to time, feel insecure. Yes, I know there are some people out there who don't do insecurity, but most of us do, don't we? And we have to be careful that that doesn't cause us to slip into jealousy. We need to be all the more careful because we're pretty adept at rationalising the way we feel and thus not recognising emotions like jealousy for what they are. How do you respond to other people's success? Not, Not any old person's success. How do you respond to someone who succeeds in something that you'd like to succeed in? Someone, for example, who uh, does something at work, a direct peer at work. We need to be careful, recognise our feelings for what they are. Seek God's help in overcoming our insecurities and seek God's help in avoiding the sin that falls from those insecurities. Now, our insecurities may or may not be justified. In Saul's case, they were justified in this sense. He had reason to be insecure because he knew that God had rejected him as king. He knew that because the prophet Samuel had told him. That's back in 1 Samuel 15, if you want to look at it earlier. Uh, He knew that, and he probably suspected that David was the one who was designated to succeed him as king. And he was right, of course, in that. Now, had Saul trusted in God, he would have accepted God's will. But he didn't trust in God, and he didn't accept God's will. Instead, he fought against it. This is verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul... He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Uh, You probably find it slightly puzzling that it says there was an evil spirit from the Lord. If you want to think about that more, there's some notes on it in the reading plan. But but just briefly... uh, we're not quite clear precisely the mechanism being spoken about there, spoken about there, but the general import is clear. God is not evil. God does not produce evil or do evil things. However, the Bible shows us time and again that God may use the evil that is in the world to achieve his own good purposes, turning evil on itself, if you like. And in this case, it's clear what he was doing was uh, effecting, executing judgment on Saul. If you read some old Norse, uh, Germanic or Anglo-Saxon literature, you'll find people, warriors, who fight valiantly against their fate. And they're regarded as heroes. But the Bible, and in particular 1 Samuel, shows us that there's no such thing as fate. What there is, is the will of God. And there's absolutely nothing heroic about fighting against that. It's simply wrong. 
and it's futile. And to use a very strong word, it's pathetic. Just listen to this from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Why do they do it? Why oppose God? Let's break off their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. How does God respond? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The one, the Lord scoffs at them. It is pathetic. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. You see, the Bible tells us that if we set our face against God, set our face against doing his will, then we will embark upon a course of action which results in us going down a spiral, ultimately to our own destruction. And we see that exemplified in King Saul. We will see it particularly in detail in coming weeks, but we see the beginnings of it already in this passage. You see, he started by hurling a spear twice at David. But that was in one of his rages that came on to him sometimes. People might have dismissed that as him just being in in an uncontrollable situation. But then he moved on to cool, calculated, attempted murder. We didn't hear it read, but verse 17 says that Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Well, that thought may have salved Saul's conscience, uh, but it didn't salve anything else. It didn't remove his guilt. Uh, Besides which, if you read on in chapters 19 and 20, you'll find that it was unsuccessful. And once it was unsuccessful, the mask dropped off and Saul attempted direct uh, murder. But if you read those chapters, you'll also read something else, that God thwarted those attempts, including on one occasion sending his spirit so as to disable Saul, both mentally and physically. I hope that the lesson for us is pretty obvious. It is pointless to seek to thwart God's will. We cannot do it. And it is a terrible thing to fall foul of God. We should look at the example of Saul, read the things that we're told of what happened to him as a result of his judgment by God, and tremble. But as we tremble, we must remember one other thing, which is this, that God is love. And God always holds out to us the offer of forgiveness and restoration if we will turn back to him. So yes, as we look at Saul, we must tremble, but we shouldn't despair. Rather, we should act. We should act by acknowledging that our rebellion against God is wrong and accepting God's plan for our lives. 
Of course, the problem with that is it's sometimes not easy, is it? Uh, It wouldn't have been easy for Saul, because for Saul to do that would have required that he accepted that he was not going to remain king. And that would have been difficult, very difficult. Very difficult, but not impossible. And that's shown by the example of his son, Jonathan. You see, David was as much a threat to Jonathan as he was to David. Saul pointed that out to his son on one occasion. This is chapter 20, verse 31. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, that's David, neither you nor your kingdom will be established, Jonathan. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. That's what Saul said. And by the way, Saul was right. But he drew the conclusion that therefore David must be killed. Saul, uh, Jonathan rather, knew his father was right. But he drew a radically different conclusion. We heard it in our reading. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. It's not clear entirely what the significance of those actions were. Uh, was. Uh, however, a few chapters later, we read that Jonathan openly acknowledged that David would be king and not him. You see, for all his religiosity, and we see a lot of it, Saul did not have a living faith in God. And as a result, he couldn't accept the will of God. Jonathan, we see on a number of occasions in 1 Samuel, did have a living faith in God. And so despite the fact that God's will was against what appeared to be his interests, he accepted it. We need to reflect on that. I assume we're not going to be in situations quite as extreme as those in which Saul and Jonathan found themselves. But we may well already have been in situations, or be in them in the future, in which our understanding, our knowledge of the will of God comes into conflict with what we want, with what we deeply desire even, with the whole way we want to live our lives. And when that happens, we need to decide what to do about it. And this passage sets in front of us two models, two options of the way we can go. We can follow Saul. We can reject the will of God. We can fight against it. But in that case, be warned, Saul shows us we will go on that downward spiral ultimately to our destruction. Or we can follow the model of Jonathan. We can bow before God and his will, accept it and work with it. In that case, like Jonathan, we will live lives fulfilling the will of God, lives that are themselves fulfilled and fulfilling. By the way, Jonathan died young, but that's not the point. What matters is that he lived a fulfilled life while he was on earth. Those are the two models, and they're the only two models. If you think about it logically, there is no third option. We can't 
half do the will of God or half be committed to God. We need to choose, and I trust the choice is pretty obvious. So that's Saul and Jonathan, and that's looking at their relationship with David and, more importantly, with God. But but we need to look at David himself. Of course, he defeated uh, Goliath. He was a hero. He had the adulation of the Israelites and, in particular, of the soldiers. But he also had to endure the murderous hostility of Saul. I can imagine some of you thinking, yeah, right, but it was quite easy for him, wasn't it? After all, the prophet Samuel had told him he was going to win. The prophet Samuel had said he was going to be king, so he could sit back, put his feet up and relax. Really? It's not as simple as that, is it? Try to put yourself in the position of of David. Would you not, in the face of all Saul's attempts to kill you and harm you, would you not ever have thought, was Samuel right? And even if you didn't think that, you might reflect on the fact that God had never said that your life would be easy. He never said you wouldn't suffer. Maybe... He had in mind David being king for a day, or maybe a crippled king, or a blinded king. You know, if I'd been in David's position, I I think I'd have been pretty scared. And we know from the rest of 1 Samuel that on occasions he was. Now we're going to look at those uh, situations in detail in coming weeks. For now, I just want to focus on two big overarching points. The first is this. David recognised that God and God alone could protect him against Saul. And so he turned to God in prayer and sought his help. We've got many examples of that in the Bible, but a really good one is um, Psalm 59, which you'll find in the reading plan. This uh, relates to the situation we read about in 1 Samuel 19, where Saul, having given up on indirect methods, uh, sent some men to watch over David's house with a view to murdering him. And in Psalm 59, we read David's prayer in that situation. I won't read it all. Deliver me from my enemies, O God, Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offence or sin of mine, O Lord. I've done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look at my plight. It's pretty urgent stuff, isn't it? And then he reflected. And he said, O my strength, I watch for you. You, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. And then similarly, right at the end of the psalm, O my strength, I sing praise to you. You, O God, are my fortress, my loving God. David turned to God in prayer and then said he was watching to see how God responded. That's point one. But point two Do note from the whole of 1 Samuel that that watching was not a passive watching. 
David didn't sit back and do nothing. No, on the contrary, he took steps to protect himself, ultimately, as we shall see, fleeing from the court of Saul and effectively going into exile. And also, he accepted the help of his wife and his friends. Successively, Michal, Jonathan and Samuel saved David's life. The critical thing is this. God was protecting David using different means. So, as I've already said, on one occasion, he directly intervened, sending his spirit to disable Saul so that Saul could not kill David. More often, we see in 1 Samuel, he used other people, Michal, Jonathan, Samuel. It didn't matter. The means were irrelevant. What mattered is that God was with David and was protecting David. That's the lesson we learn from this bit of 1 Samuel. And again, I hope the lesson for us is pretty obvious I hope we're not quite in the position David is, uh, was with someone pursuing our life. I suppose if you are, you'd better come and have a word about it afterwards. But uh, uh, I'm sure there are other situations, lesser situations, in which we need God's protection. Actually, the truth is we need God's protection at all times. But, but situations in where we're particularly aware of that need for God's protection. And when we are in those situations... We should respond as David responded. We should remember that it is God and God alone who will protect us. We should recognise, though, that he may well use different means. If he chooses to intervene directly, that's great. But he may choose to use friends and family. We're all here together. We are the people of God. We are called upon to support one another. And we mustn't be so, what's the right word, arrogant, that we reject that help. But, but having done that, and indeed taken sensible steps of our own, we should then watch. Watch to see how God will act. Watch to see that God does indeed protect us. Because you see, God is with us just as he was with David. I I should qualify that. God is with us if we have repented of our rebellion against him and have turned to Christ, trusting in Christ. But, but, but if we have done that, then God is with us. Do you remember what Jesus said uh, in the upper room just before uh, he was crucified? He talked to his disciples at great length, uh, describing various things so as to help them and prepare them for the situation that was about to come upon them. And he concluded by saying, and this is John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. David experienced the reality of that a thousand years before Jesus said it. And and so can we. Think again about one of the last things Jesus said before ascending into heaven. He had told his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And then he said, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. 
That wasn't just a promise for them, that's a promise for us as well, and, and we need to remember it. So there you have it. We've seen Saul rejecting the will of God, fighting against it, and embarking on that downward spiral to his own destruction, as we shall see. There's Jonathan, who, however, accepted the will of God, though not to his apparent advantage, and lived a life fulfilling God's will. And we've seen David, who also accepted the will of God, this time clearly on its face to his advantage, but which led him through great suffering, distress, and fear, and who turned to God and sought and received his protection. Three people, three very different people, three very different situations, and three very different responses. But they're here in the Bible so that we can learn from them, and we should do that. Amen.